Acts 23, starting at verse 12. To catch you up, we are following Paul on his way through the Roman judicial system. And we saw last week in verse 11 that this is going to end with Paul testifying in Rome. So we know how this is going to end. Paul knows how this is going to end, but we're waiting to see exactly how it's going to play out. He was arrested, you'll remember, by the Romans because in the temple there were some Jews from Asia, which that's the region where the church of Ephesus was and Colossae and Laodicea and some of those churches. They saw Paul started a riot in the temple because they said, this is the guy, this is the one that's telling everybody to stop following the law of Moses, which wasn't exactly true, but people weren't really worried about the truth in that moment. And they said he brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, the Gentile, into the temple, which was not true, but it started a riot. It forced the Roman tribune to bring soldiers down into the temple complex and take Paul away. Paul barely avoided being tortured to find out what was really going on by asserting his Roman citizenship. And then he was dragged last week, we saw before, the Sanhedrin, which was the Jerusalem Council of Elders, where they were punching him in the mouth when he tried to give his answers. He was unable to make a proper defense, and it ended up descending into this partisan fight and Paul was caught in the middle and once again the Roman Tribune had to send soldiers in to pull him out so that he didn't get torn to pieces. And what we've seen and will continue to see throughout these stories is the unfairness of it all. That's what's so frustrating. It's so unfair. Paul had done plenty of things that might have gotten in trouble with the Jews but the one that gets him arrested is something he didn't even do. You'll remember he came to Jerusalem with an offering from the Gentile churches in order to promote peace between Jews and Gentiles. James, brother of Jesus, told Paul, why don't you go and sponsor some guys and their offerings and their vows so that way we can try and smooth the waters a little more. So Paul was not only promoting peace between Jews and Gentiles, he was in the temple taking a vow, purifying himself according to the law. It's unfair. He'd done nothing wrong, and every time he's given a chance to defend himself, he doesn't get to finish. This is what frustrates us about persecution throughout the ages, really, is that it's unfair. Christians are not rebels. We're not troublemakers. We're not dissidents. But that's always how we're painted, isn't it? I think of our brothers and sisters in China right now that are really being pressed because they're concerned. The excuse is, well, if we let them continue to do their thing, it's going to promote division. It's going to promote anger towards the government. And it's like, that's not even what we do. And and we could open up Bible verses to show you that's not what we do. But no one ever cares. You maybe have been accused of things at work. And, well, we know you're a Christian. And that's what Christians like. That's not even what we believe. But they don't care. Now, In response to that unfairness, many Christians have said, all right, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get into the game the way the world does. We're going to get into the politics game. We're going to get into the business game. We're going to get out there to try and fight for our own, and we're going to advocate for ourselves. And there might be a place for that, but I think what we've seen is even when we do that, it doesn't really get any better. We might have voices that speak up for us, and there might be momentary reprieves, but it always cycles back. This is because, as we've said many times, we are not playing the same game as the world, so to speak. We're not achieving the same goals. We're not playing by the same set of rules. We've been brought into an entirely different kingdom 
Peter calls us sojourners and pilgrims. We're just here temporarily. And in a way, this makes us above the struggle. The world can fight and the nations can rage and we're just out there to preach the gospel. But in another sense, it puts us at the mercy of the whims of the world. Because as the world changes and shifts, we don't. So we can get ping-ponged back and forth between different groups that hate us. But Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, that in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus told us, you're the light of the world and the world hates the light because the world is sitting in darkness and their job is to go out and extinguish that light. But we're out there to shine it. We're out there to bring the good news to as many as possible that we might save just a few, as Paul said. And we're going to learn today that in the face of persecution, of unfairness, we defend against that by maintaining an incorruptible testimony. So that there is no impediment to the preaching of the gospel. So that, as it says in Proverbs several times, when your enemy comes after you, he's the one that's put to shame. And it opens up doors, as we're going to see happen for Paul in this story. So let's read now, starting at verse 12. And these are large sections because it's a big section of scripture. But we're going to read down to verse 22. When it was day, so that would be the day after Paul had the vision of the Lord Jesus, The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Never say Paul's life was boring. Well, you can see these Jews have not calmed down since Paul was dragged out of the temple. The last we saw Paul before the Jews, remember they were taken off their cloaks. They were throwing dirt in the air. They were screaming at him, this man doesn't deserve to live. He goes to the Sanhedrin and very obviously the council was setting Paul up to be condemned, but he gets out of that one too. So they say, fine, we'll do it another way. And we've discussed through these last couple chapters, the assassins or the Sicarii a couple times, the zealots as they were called. These were political operatives that functioned as assassins. They carried the knives in their cloaks and they would walk into the crowds and stab those who were opposed to 
the nation and all that and run away. And they were causing a lot of trouble at this time. You remember the Tribune thought that Paul was the head of a group of assassins, a group of Sicarii. Well, now they're coming after Paul. And there's more than 40 of them, it says, who literally in the Greek there, they cursed themselves with a curse. They anathmati, anathmatisamen. That's where it says we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath. We put a curse on ourselves if we don't get Paul. And a plot is made involving the high priests and the elders. Remember Paul called Ananias a whitewashed wall? He's kind of right, isn't he? And it's interesting. We have one of the only references to Paul's family here. Apparently Paul had a sister and she had a son. Don't know anything else about them, but he raised the alarm. Kind of makes you wonder about the rest of Paul's family and what they thought of his choice of career, you could say. And Paul is able to warn the officials. He warns the centurion, remember, who was a captain of 100, who then warns the tribune, who was the captain of the cohort or the captain of 1,000. Now, you've got to remember here, at this point, Jerusalem is on the verge of eruption. This had all happened during the Feast of Pentecost, where the city would swell to millions of people, millions of Jews who were angry at Rome. Nationalism was at a fever pitch right now. In only a few years, these zealots, these Sicarii, are going to stage a revolution, kick Rome out, and that's going to cause Rome to come back and destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. We're not there yet. But you can see that some of this nationalism, some of this Jewish pride is spilling over against Paul. Because what was Paul? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was taking the message of the Jewish Messiah to those unclean Gentile dogs. Now they didn't understand what he was preaching. They had it all wrong. But that didn't really matter to them. They were more worried about there's more important things right now than going out to those filthy Gentiles. And this is always the way, isn't it? The world hates the message of the gospel. And it's very rarely in response to the actual gospel. Have you noticed that? The people that are the loudest in their opposition to Jesus seem to know very little about what Jesus actually said. And I've heard people quote, you know, quote from the Bible. I'm like, that's not even in the Bible. Or they'll point to some radical, weird, extreme, fringe Christian group and say, there they go again. And we're like, wait, hold on. That's not us. We don't do that. We don't say that. And you ever watch TV or you hear a podcast or you read a book and you want to scream at the screen? It's like, that's not what we do. We don't do that. We don't talk about that. We don't think that. We don't believe that. That's not what the gospel is. The most frustrating is people trying to throw us a bone, you know. Well, I mean, this is what the Christians believe. And it's like, oh, please don't say that. I know you're trying to be nice, but that's not what we believe, man. Christians don't think you actually have to believe the Bible. It's like, yeah, we do. Sorry. They reject the gospel. They hate the message because it interferes with their goals and their priorities. And because there is a devil, because there is a Satan who hates the gospel itself. Satan knows the message and Satan hates the message. Satan has his theology perfectly in line. He just doesn't believe and so he'll use people who have motives that are probably aimed in the wrong direction or, or going off of bad information. He's perfectly willing to take that and aim it at the gospel. He'll inspire men to do reprehensible things against the church in the name of some other cause. Very rarely is it, we hate the church and we're coming after them. There's another reason. You know, we're at war and they're causing trouble. We're trying to stage a revolution, and they're holding us back. They hate this group. They hate this thing, and we've got to stop them. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, God, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded their minds. This is why it often does us no good to explain ourselves. You get called in to HR at work for talking about Jesus to somebody, and they're going to start going on about, well, the separation of church and state, and we can't push religion on people. And you can try to explain yourself. I wasn't doing any of that. Rarely does you any good. They'll just say, well, look, just whatever it is, you've got to stop. Because there is a spiritual and emotional reaction going on. Satan is pushing this. This is why a lot of times you look at it and you go, I just don't understand why they're so mad. Because there's another dimension to this here. It has very little to do with logic and reason. If you've read the Screwtape Letters, which is written by C.S. Lewis, and it's supposed to be the perspective from a tempting demon, and he tells another demon, don't get him thinking logically. If you get him thinking logically, he's going to become a Christian. Are you crazy? You want to stir up his passions and his emotions. You want to stir up his, his beliefs and things that can't really be explained in order to oppose him to the Lord. There are people that will do anything to silence the church, even what is unjust and dishonorable because the gospel is disruptive to their plans and their priorities. They didn't really care about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. These people just knew they're trying to unify the Jews against Rome. And here's some guy preaching love and kindness and forgiveness to the Gentiles. That can't happen. We've got to make an example out of this guy because we need solidarity. We're about to have a revolution. Because think about it. What does the gospel do? The gospel gets people thinking about their souls. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just swinging my fist. It's not hitting anybody's jaw. But you come in and you give the gospel of Jesus. Now all of a sudden, I've got to evaluate my behavior in light of heaven, not just in light of what I think about it. That's disruptive to somebody's life. You can totally upend the way they've been living and all their excuses. That's why there's that emotional reaction to it. It teaches people to love their enemies. People don't like loving their enemies. That's why they're enemies. Have you ever noticed that? It's really tragic to go throughout history. I'll, I'll give one example that in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s, when William Wilberforce was pushing for the abolition of the slave trade, everybody was, was behind him. They were with him, and there was momentum, and it was pushing forward until they went to war with France. And now there are people saying, if we disrupt the slave trade, that'll wreck our economy. France will pick up the slave trade. Their economy will prosper and we'll lose the war. So now abolition is seen as sedition against the crown. And people started hating Wilberforce and all of his friends. And people that loved him and supported him before were against him. And you're like, how could you do that? Don't you see how wrong this is? Because that would have meant loving their enemies. Or letting their enemies get an advantage over them and they couldn't react to that. And that's happened countless different ways and it's still happening today. It gives people a heavenly perspective on life. And there's people that don't want folks to have a heavenly perspective because they've got plans for this world. They've got money to make. They've got elections to win. And when you start telling people about heaven, they've got to get us out of there. John 3.19 says, this is the judgment, or this is the condemnation. Why does God judge the world? People ever ask you, why is God going to judge the world? I don't see it. This is it. Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light. Well, if God would show himself to me, I'd believe him. No, you wouldn't, because he did, and you didn't. 
The Lord came. He showed himself. Jesus Christ was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we nailed him to a cross. And people are still crucifying Jesus in their lives to this day. Not physically, but they don't want anything to do with him. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but me. We've got to understand this. Because if we don't understand that the world hates the gospel for these reasons and that Satan is behind it, stoking those fires, we'll get frustrated. Paul could be sitting, this is so unfair. This isn't even legal. They can't do this to me. I'm in protective custody, but I can't leave. Explain that one to me. I'm a Roman citizen. We get frustrated. We, the world is backhanded. It's sneaky. There are policies, you know, memos. You ever get a memo from work that comes your way and it's very obviously aimed at you? You know, or the slander that comes against us. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Even physical confrontation. There's some folks, you try to talk to them about Jesus, and you start getting the advantage over them, so they'll just get in your face and yell. Don't talk to me anymore. Get out of my face. It's like, fine, I can't argue with what you're saying, so I'll just shut you up by putting my fist in your face. We've got to understand that, or you'll get frustrated, and you'll get bitter towards the world. But you've got to remember, Jesus died even though the verdict against him was innocent. How many times did Pilate say, I find no fault in this man? And they still crucified him. You're no better than Jesus. Jesus said that. He said, if they crucified me, they're not going to like you. If you want to be a Christian and you want to be a herald of the gospel, you've got to be prepared to be hated. And that means you've got to endure unfair opposition patiently. A lot of times we prepare ourselves for a clean fight. You know, there's a referee. We've both got boxing gloves on. The cut man has checked us. Everything's fair. But the enemy doesn't do that. He sticks a nail in the end of his glove. And we're like, that's not fair. Well, the enemy fights dirty. That's why he's the devil. We've got to be prepared to endure even unfair opposition. They're going to assassinate Paul. Fine. He wants to talk. He wants to cause trouble. We'll just kill him. Verse 23 I'm going down to verse 35 now. So then he, that's the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Leaves out the part where he almost flogged him, but that's okay. <laughs> and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And yet here he is imprisoned. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on without him or with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So the tribune sends Paul away, still under protective custody, to Caesarea, under a guard of 470 men. Now remember, there are 40 assassins 
and they might have friends, so that's why there's so many of them. He says, leave at the third hour of the night, which would have been 9 p.m., and he says, give him mounts to ride. You remember this, you ever watch those old Western movies, you need fresh horses, right, if we're going to keep going. So they've got fresh mounts for Paul to ride. And then he gives him this letter, which lays out the story. And, and what's the point of this letter? He's emphasizing this isn't really a legal thing. This is, this is an internal religious dispute. But they're out to kill him, so I figured I'd send him to you. Again, emphasizing how unfair all this is. They go 35 miles north of Jerusalem to Antipatris. And this is where the infantry goes home, but the cavalry continues, because that's about 35 miles north, so there's... Probably less danger at that point. And then they go 27 miles further north to Caesarea. And we've talked about this before. This is Caesarea Maritima, not Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus went. The name Caesarea is the city of Caesar, so you can understand why there was a lot of those. And this is that fabulous city that we discussed before that Herod built on the seaside. And the last time we were here, this is when Paul was in the house of Philip, the evangelist, with his four daughters who prophesied. And Agabus came and warned him, you go to Jerusalem and you're going to get bound by the Jews. And I wonder if maybe there was an I told you so coming Paul's way when he got there. But he's presented before Felix and put under guard in the praetorium. Now, the praetorium was where the guards would have been. It's where the Roman officials would have lived. This is a nice place. As prisons go, this isn't so bad. This was kind of a resort Area. This was the, the getaway for the governor, you know, where he would go and enjoy himself some. So Paul's not in a dungeon right now, but he can't leave either. Not an ideal situation, but no more assassins. And the Lord had promised to him in 23 verse 11, remember, that you will go to Rome, and God's going to keep his word. This is another reason for us to keep enduring unfair suffering, because the Lord is in control. And just like with the disciples, if Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee... And there's storms. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. You're going to Rome. The Lord is going to secure you for the plans that he has for you. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, let me just read this passage and we'll move on. Verses 28 through 31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? What does that mean? It means sparrows are cheap. You can get two for one cent. But not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is reminding us, I got you. Don't fear those people that are going to come after you because I've got you in the palm of my hand. Just like Paul is in the Lord's hand. It's maybe a, an exciting escape with 470 soldiers worrying where the assassins are, are lurking in the rocks on the side of the road. But... The Lord took care of him. Moving on to chapter 24 now, verses 1 through 9. And after five days, the high priest Ananias, the old whitewashed wall himself, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace. That was not true, by the way. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix... Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. 
By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Ananias makes it up to Caesarea with, it says, a spokesman in the ESV. That is a rhetoros. comes from the same word that we get rhetoric from. So this is a famous rhetorician and lawyer coming to speak against Paul. And he calls Paul a ringleader of that dangerous sect. That word there is heresis. It's where we get the word heresy from. And you can see how he's buttering up the governor. You're such a wonderful governor. We love you so much. Let me just say, the reforms you're bringing are fabulous. Which is not true because Felix was, was brought in and Josephus tells us that Felix worked hard to suppress those Sicarii, those zealots. They keep coming back, right? And he suppressed them, but it just brought more resentment to the people and it just caused the revolution to come a little later. So this isn't even true. He's just buttering him up. And I'm sure some of you all noticed this, that I, I skipped over verse 7. A lot of the older translations include the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 8, which say, And we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. The best and oldest manuscripts we have do not include that little section. That's part of what is called the Western text. I've not talked about this a lot, but there is a, there is an, a later, like centuries later, text family of, of biblical manuscripts that have a lot more of explanatory detail like this. It doesn't change anything that happens, but they just include more things like that. And none of it changes what it actually means, but because we've got these multitudes of manuscripts that are older and that we can trace it back even farther, we want to make sure that we have what the original text would have said. For right now, we're just going to move on past that. I hope you can see that we don't lose or gain anything by having it there or not. Now all these Jews are there. They come together lying and exaggerating and insinuating to paint a poor picture of Paul. You know, they, they don't really accuse him of anything specific. Do you see that? This man is a plague. This man just is stirring up trouble all around the world. And he's a ringleader of those heretics, the Nazarenes. Another name that would have been called the Way or the Nazarenes. And we even caught him trying to profane the temple, which was not, of course, illegal under Roman law. So they don't even accuse him of a crime here. This is one of the most difficult things for a Christian to endure when your reputation is under attack. When they're not going to come at you directly, they're just going to try and ruin your name so that nobody wants to listen to you anymore. It's unfair, and it's amazing to me that people will do that without a second thought, that they're willing to, to lie. They know what they're doing. They know they're lying about Paul, but they want him gone, so they're willing to do it. But you've got to remember what we said. The world hates the light. The world hates the gospel. And you've got to be willing to endure even having your name and your reputation dragged through the mud. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's a blessing that comes to being insulted and lied about and slandered. Jesus says, you should rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're not playing the same game the world is. We can see the spiritual behind the physical, and we've got to recognize that this attention is spiritual. It's an attack from the enemy. 
And Jesus said, hey, if they're coming after you and dragging your name through the mud because you're a Christian, you must be doing something right. Endure through that. The Lord will vindicate you. And, of course, we know Paul was not only vindicated in this story, but he's vindicated now. They didn't get away with slandering Paul's name. The Lord has a way of sorting out reputations, doesn't he? Let's keep reading verses 10 through 21. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. What's, what's the point of that verse? He's saying, you know what these people are like, <laughs> and you know what the Christians are like. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, is that word heresy, heresy, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Immediately you can see the difference between Paul's testimony and their accusation, can't you? They're all about flattery and not really saying anything definite, but you got to watch out for this dangerous man. Paul comes in with facts. Twelve days in the temple, purified. Where are the witnesses? He's willing to put himself out there. He has evidence. He has integrity. The elders and the priests did not have any of that. He describes why he came to Jerusalem in the first place, which was to make peace between Jews and Gentiles, bringing an offering, a financial gift to the poor in Jerusalem. And that he was in the temple in a purified state. And we've talked about this before. Paul was not bound by the law any more than any of us are. And he was not purifying himself according to the rituals when he was out among the Gentiles. But he comes home and he does purify himself. So it's, it's the irony again, the unfairness that the one time he was purified is the time they came after him for being impure. And he wasn't causing any trouble, obviously. They're the ones that caused trouble. They don't have the witnesses that were there and did cause the trouble. And he affirms his own integrity without shame. He's like, I know who I am, and you have to prove this. You can't just say things like this. we got some fabulous verses there in 14 and 15 that we might have to come back to sometime. When he says that the way is the true completion of Judaism. He says, I, I worship the God of my fathers. I believe everything in the law and the prophets. He's in obedience to the scriptures. So Paul is saying, I'm not outside of what the word teaches. But as he said in Romans 10:4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's like, if you keep the law, if you try to do what God says, it's going to lead you to Christ. And his greatest defense here is his own testimony. He doesn't have to find loopholes and stuff. He can just show up and say what he did. These guys are shady and they're slippery, but he can stand up and be open and honest even before the Roman governor. So here it is. 
If we want to stand against the lies and the accusations and the unfairness of the world, you must maintain your integrity before all men. You've got to be proactively following Jesus and doing the right thing so that when the slander comes, it won't stick. Christians, though, who revile when they are reviled, we talked about this, folks who feed the trolls on YouTube and in the love of Jesus blast people and tell them they're going to hell when they comment something they don't like on YouTube videos or when Christians who have a, a history of a bad temper and foul language or even sexual immorality, they, they bring shame on the rest of the church because the world can just point at them and laugh. There you are. That's you guys. Whenever some prominent or popular Christian figure falls, all, immediately we get all tarred with that brush, don't we? Because the world says, ah, they're, they're just like the rest of us. But have you noticed that the Christians that are fleecing the flock and engaging in open sin and promoting heresy, they, they never get opposition from the world. Nobody comes after the cultists and the heretics. Because like, ah, they're, they're just like everybody else. Like I've said, we're operating on a different kingdom. But people like that are operating in the same kingdom as the world. Therefore, they're less of a threat to the world because they can understand that. What they can't understand is people like Paul who have integrity and are actually living out what the word of God says. A Christian who maintains his faithful testimony, who cannot be corrupted, is a threat to the world. As we, d we discussed that that Testimony shines a light in the darkness, and the world hates the light. And so people will be out to sabotage them. There's no fair fight when you're maintaining your testimony. Let's talk about Daniel for a minute. If there's ever a man that maintained his integrity against the worst opposition, it's Daniel. Daniel went through all the mess with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and then he becomes an official in the, the Persian Empire. And he's doing so well as one of the provincial leaders, the king is thinking, you know what? I should just let Daniel run the whole thing. I'll, I'll make him like Joseph in Egypt. I'll just give him all the authority and I can just have a lot of fun golfing or whatever the kings do when they're not governing. And so all of Daniel's other co-workers, all of the other guys that were provincial leaders that knew they were about to get leapfrogged by Daniel, they say, you know what we're going to do? We've got to bring Daniel down. So they say, listen, everybody's got skeletons in their closet. There's no honest man in Congress. Get out there, find some dirt on Daniel, and we'll bring him down. And they send out spies, and they try, and they try, and they can't find anything against Daniel. And they come back, and all they got to say is, all he does is pray. What do you want us to do? And they say, well, we'll make prayer illegal. That sounds so ridiculous, but they only made it for 30 days because all they wanted to do was get Daniel in trouble. Daniel had to be sabotaged in order to get rid of him because he wasn't going to do it himself. And you know the story. He was thrown in the lion's den and the lions wouldn't touch him. But then they throw the accusers of Daniel into the lion's den. They didn't even make it to the bottom until the lions tore him to pieces. The Lord vindicated Daniel. 1 Peter 2 verse 15 says, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You ever have somebody say to you, well, you're not like most Christians. And you say, well, how many Christians have you known? I guess none. I remember hearing that. I was working at Ruby Tuesday and somebody said, yeah, you're, you're, you're not like most, most Liberty students. I was going to a Christian university at the time. And I'm like, 
uh, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah. Well, most Christians, I mean, they're, they're awful. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I guess, I, I guess not. You know, folks get an image of their mind. It's, it's ignorance. You know, it's foolishness, as Peter says. And that when you do good and worship your father and walk in integrity like Daniel, you put to silence and shame the ignorance of foolish people. And when folks want to start talking about Christians are this and Christians are that, everybody who knows you is going to go, that's not true. I know him. I know her. That's not what they're like. Paul standing here made the Jews look foolish and corrupt because he's actually a man of integrity. They've got all the trappings of integrity. They've got the high priestly robes and their elders, and they've got lawyers that they can retain. And here comes Paul, the prisoner, and he doesn't have to do any kind of fancy rhetoric. He just comes in and says what happened. I've always strived to maintain a good conscience, he said. We've got to seek that same goal. The book of Titus calls this adorning the doctrine. We've got the gospel and the doctrine that we present And there's lots of strategies people have to make the doctrine more acceptable to people. But the only permission the Bible gives us to do that is by our lives living in obedience to Jesus Christ. By the integrity and righteousness of your life. It makes the gospel attractive. I remember growing up, I would have parents that would say, you know, I really want my son to hang out with you more because I know you're very religious and I think it'd be a good influence on him. And be like, okay, well... If you don't have the religious part, I don't know if the rest of it's going to work. But it's adorning the gospel. It's making the gospel attractive to people by saying, man, that guy just stands up before Felix and can just say like it is. He doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to deceive. She doesn't have to cheat to get ahead at work. He doesn't have to fudge the numbers because they're just men and women of integrity. And people, I think, at a very base level want that. They want that. And this is what Peter and Paul's example calls us to do. You can win an audience that way. You can even win converts when someone comes up to you and say, all right, I want the secret. Tell me what it is. Now, of course, if you're full of pride, then all that unfairness is going to get to you and you're going to blow your testimony. You'll start playing the world's game. Fine, if that's the way it's going to be, then we've got to fight fire with fire. No, no. Suffer wrong, the Bible says. You have that heavenly incorruptibility. That's the light of the world. It puts people to shame when they try to stamp that light out. You're like, well, wait a minute. I'm the light that's getting stamped. Okay. So what? It's for the glory of Jesus Christ. Is he not worthy to have you share in his sufferings? Paul thought so. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, remember, he's been there for a while. He knows who the Christians are. He put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So this is Felix. He's the governor. He decides to postpone the trial until the one witness that's really not there, which is Claudius Lysias, the tribune, can come and testify on the record. But don't we already have Claudius Lysias's testimony? We have the letter that he sent in. The tribune is never going to get called up. This is, this is more corruption here. But Paul is given liberty. He can have visitors. So Philip and his four daughters probably came and ministered to him. Maybe they were having church in the praetorium because Paul couldn't come. Who knows? Luke was likely there because Luke is going to leave with him to go to Rome when he finally leaves. Aristarchus is also going to leave with Paul, maybe some of those other companions he had. But this is the beginning of a two-year imprisonment. 
The devil is trying to wait Paul out now. Sometimes the devil will do that. If the attack doesn't work, he says, all right, we'll try a siege. We'll starve him out. You are not promised a quick resolution to your suffering. You've got to maintain the struggle until Jesus comes back. You know, in you read uh, some of the testimonies and the writings of people who were held in internment camps in Vietnam and Japan and places like that. They'll say that the people who could endure to the end were the people that had no hope of getting rescued. But the people who were always like, by Christmas for sure. Okay, by Easter for sure. By the end of summer for sure, that hope that was deferred over and over again just caused them to get run down and they wouldn't make it. But the ones that were like, listen, this is it. We're here until we're not here anymore. That gave them the endurance to keep going. Same thing for us. Until Jesus comes back, you are in a world full of people that hate the gospel and they're going to be coming for you. So don't, don't think that you're entitled to a relief from your suffering because you're not. Verse 24, getting to the end here. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away. <laughs> Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. This guy, Felix, he was governor in Judea for about a decade, which would have been the 50s A.D., Right now, we believe in the book of Acts, we're looking at around 57 AD. It's not quite 60. And he's recorded, as I said, as a tough ruler. He put down the, the zealots, the Sicarii, but political tensions were so high by putting them down, they just waited until he wasn't governor anymore, and then it all came roaring back. His wife, Drusilla, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. She was his third wife. She was not yet 20 years old. He was older than that. And he had persuaded her to divorce her previous husband to marry him. So this is an illicit marriage here. It's very interesting how similar this is to, to John the Baptist and Herod. In the same way that there's an illicit marriage that was being called out and they're both in prison and they're both having these conversations with the king, but neither of them ever did anything about it. It says Felix called Paul to speak about faith in Christ Jesus often, often he would get Paul over two years. And this reveals to us the purpose of everything we've learned today. The world is unfair and hates us and hates the gospel. We maintain a good testimony in the middle of that. Why? So that we can have an opportunity to present the gospel. Did Paul get the chance to preach to everybody in this situation? No, but there was one. And that was enough. That was enough. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. If it wasn't for all of this stuff that had happened, Paul would never have had the opportunity to preach the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. And he preaches, it says, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That's an appropriate message for this crowd as he's sitting there waiting for a bribe from Paul. Good luck, buddy. You're going to be waiting a while to get a bribe from Paul. But let's look at this really quickly coming to the end here. He preached about righteousness. It's the Greek word dikaiosune. It can mean justice. It's where we get the word justified from. This is right and wrong. Paul begins by laying out the truth of a holy standard, God's holy standard. 
That's where we begin when we preach the gospel. That there is an objective, absolute measure of truth and righteousness. And the standard is God himself. Whatever does not align with God and his character and nature is called sin. Morality is not just relative to each person or situation. Well, it's, it's right for you, but you don't understand my circumstances. I have to steal because of this. I have to lie because of that. I have to cheat because of this. Doesn't work that way. There is right and there is wrong. Not only is there righteousness, but every one of us has failed to attain that righteousness. Paul would write later on, or actually he would have already written at this point, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's preaching to him about righteousness. Felix, there is right and wrong. Remember how Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Maybe Felix asked a similar question to Paul and says, God is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. His word is truth. There is righteousness. And we've all fallen short of it. But then self-control. Maybe Felix said, ah, yeah, there is right and wrong, but no one keeps that standard, so what use is it? No one could possibly keep it. Therefore, we can't possibly be held accountable for it because nobody keeps it. Everybody lies. Everybody steals. Everybody cheats. Well, that's true, but that doesn't change anything in terms of God. Your impulses do not give you an excuse. A lot of times the things that we use to justify sin just basically amount to, well, I really wanted to. <laughs> you know, especially when people are trying to justify adultery. They go through this big, long story about, oh, it's so, been so hard, and then I met this person, and everything was so great. And it's like, So let's just sum this up. You wanted to. Or, well, yeah, I know it's wrong to, to lie, but this guy was in my way, and if I got over him, then I could be promoted, and I could make a little extra money, and then I could tithe more to the church. And So you wanted to. Just because you want to doesn't mean you can do it, nor do your circumstances give you an excuse. I had to kill him. You don't understand what he was like. Doesn't work that way. Paul speaks about self-control. There is a standard of righteousness, and you are held accountable for it. You must control yourself, Felix, who apparently was not known for his self-control. Felix needed to hear this. So many of us, we think our situation gives us a pass from God's righteousness. That's not how it works. Well, we're achieving a good goal so we can sin along the way. Absolutely not. That shows you don't trust the Lord. That shows you don't think God is actually in control and that it's all on your shoulders. God is holy and he cannot allow cancer in his world. He cannot allow a virus in the system. Well, we've all sinned. Yeah, that's the problem. That doesn't make things better. That makes things way worse. And this is why he moves on to discuss the coming judgment. There will be a day when all men will be judged according to how well their self-control has kept up with that righteousness. And there's two options, heaven or hell. Eternal bliss with God in heaven or eternal torment separated from God in hell. It's not just about a good life. Righteousness and self-control is not just about, well, won't it be better if you live righteously? Yes, it will. But that's not the only reason. That's not even the main reason why we do it. Because there will be times that walking in righteousness, like Paul, is going to get you arrested. It's about life and death. It's about eternity. No one's going to have an excuse. The Lord is going to say, this is my righteousness. This was your self-control. Now here comes the judgment. And there's nobody that will be able to stand before God and talk their way out of that one. The Bible says we will all be naked and exposed before the one before whom we must give an account. 
all your lines, all your self-delusions, all of the stuff you can use to blind other people, it's not going to work on God. You can see why Felix panicked here. Because he knows if there is righteousness and I'm held accountable for my self-control and there's a coming judgment, I'm going to hell. Go away. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Well, this seems like enough for today. You've given me a lot to think about. Can I give you a little thought that I hadn't planned to say? But when you're talking about the gospel with somebody and you're having a conversation about God and right before you get to the moment of truth where you've got to call them to make a decision, if they all of a sudden want to end that conversation, don't let that happen. Because you've got an enemy that's trying to get them out of there. You've got to call them to repentance. Not just say, this is true. You've got to say, now what are you going to do about it? Felix panicked. Because hell is a scary place. It causes us to shiver in our boots. Jesus described it this way in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There was a fire in the London underground in the last century. It had, there had been no safety precautions taken. There was lead paint in, on the walls, and it all caught fire. And people were coming out of that, that subway tunnel, barely surviving, but their skin was falling off of their bones because it was so charred and so burned. That's a tiny taste of what hell is going to be like. Jesus calls it the outer darkness where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. That's what's awaiting people because of their sins. It's awaiting us because of our sins. But Felix wouldn't take the good news. That's terrible, horrible news. But we've got good news. We have that euangelos, the good message that Jesus Christ has died to take that penalty. He rose again from the dead to give you escape. He took our judgment so that he could overlook your judgment. So that when you stand before God, you won't be judged by your righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. Isn't that good news? Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and rose from the dead to offer eternal life. And those who believe, those who repent, what does repent mean? Here's a new definition for you. To repent means to run screaming away from your sin because you know it's going to send you to hell. That's repentance. Lord, tell me what to believe and tell me how to live because I can't get it right. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. That's good news. That's good news. That's why we endure suffering. That's why we endure slander. That's why we maintain a testimony despite the difficulty. Because there are folks that don't know this. And we've got the good news to give them. Felix, I was willing to endure all this stuff if I could just be here and tell you that Jesus loves you and died on the cross for sins and you can escape the coming judgment. But verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years went on. Two years of Felix calling Paul often to hear the gospel, and he did nothing with it. He was looking for a bribe. He wanted to help the Jews. He was corrupt. He was still playing the world's game. He wasn't willing to take the step and become a sojourner and a pilgrim with Paul. He couldn't see the shallowness of it all. We read it, and you go, we go, you've got to be kidding me. You had Paul right in front of you, and you're asking for money? Are you crazy? But you know what? Maybe he could see the shallowness of it all. He knew that he needed to respond to this message. That's why he kept on calling Paul back. 
He said in verse 25, he kept putting it off until I get an opportunity. Today's not a good time. This isn't a good season of life. We just moved. The kids just started school. We're trying to work out some financial things. You know, the election has got everything kind of crazy. You know, COVID, I don't have time to think about it right now. We can do that our whole lives. Keep booting it down the road until one day you don't have an opportunity anymore. Felix was a dabbler. He loved the preaching. There are some people that are addicted to tough preaching and they think it's going to save them. We love to hear the preacher thunder about hell because it gives us the shivers and it gives us that emotional feeling and we're so scared to death and we think that that counts. Well, I, I, I must be okay because I'm very scared of hell and I love hearing tough preaching. He loved the challenge. He loved the emotion of it all. He loved the philosophy. He loved the doctrine. But he let that soothe his conscience rather than drive him to the cross. I went to school and seminary with people like this. They were in love with the study and the Bible text and the theology, but they didn't know God. And they thought that knowing all of those things was a substitute for knowing God. But it wasn't, and it's not. Everyone thinks they've got tomorrow in the bag. That is not the case, I promise you. I had a friend in college, good friend of mine, named Lauren. She was sleeping in the top bunk in her dorm room, middle of the night, rolled out of bed, hit her head on a side table, brain started bleeding, and she died the next day. She had done nothing wrong. She wasn't being reckless. She wasn't being crazy. She was a godly Christian woman and just a fluke like that, and her life was over. You're not promised tomorrow. I'll wait till a better opportunity. No, 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 now. Now, today is the day of salvation. But he left Paul in prison. And next week we're going to see the Jews are going to come back and they're going to start this whole process all over again with Porcius Festus. Every person on earth is going to have a day when it's too late and they will no longer be able to respond to the gospel message. Do you know that the people you're encountering today, this might be their last day? This is why you can't let the unfairness of the world's accusations get to you. Well, they're lying about me. So what? These people are dying and going to hell. Isn't it worth you enduring suffering a little bit? Mistakes are too high. We've had our eyes open. We can see what's real. And, and they can try to bully us into keeping it their way. But we've got to be willing to endure that because those people are not our enemies. They're the ones we're here to save. If you, if you show up with some medical mission and all the sick people keep showing up and you're like, these people are contagious. Well, you're there to help them. You, well, you can't get offended by them. You've got to get out there. Pity the world enough to be willing to endure suffering at their hands. As we read at the very beginning, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You must be incorruptible in this world. It's a world full of assassins and perjuries and briberies. Everyone's playing that game. But you cannot let yourself get dragged down into the mud. You've got to maintain that godly testimony that sets you apart and opens up doors for you to proclaim that message of righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. You'll open up doors, and some of them will respond and receive everlasting life. This, my friends, is worth enduring the lies and the injustice it's worth denying yourself in order to position yourself to share the message. Someday it'll be too late. And listen, if you're here today or if you're watching on the live stream and you, you've been like Felix, you're waiting until the right time 
You're not promised another minute. Do you really want to play games with God and your eternal soul? Now is the day for you to turn and run screaming from your sins and say, I need Jesus. And those of us who do know Christ, redeem every moment for his cause. Love the world enough to endure their fairness, just like Jesus who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you read the news this week about the things they're saying about Christians, when you hear them on TV railing against those people that are still going to church in the middle of a pandemic, when they try to do a Senate confirmation of another Christian and they start saying things like, Christians are just too dangerous to have in public office. Don't get angry. Get on your knees and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Help me to maintain a good testimony so that I can share with one more person.